Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The next passage is from Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea hear that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of these came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And he sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agaspus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Our Father in heaven, help us to prize this word of yours today. As we hear it preached, may we not take for granted how far you've taken us from those who are under wrath and judgment to being forgiven, loved, and adopted as your children. We, who were outside of your covenant, to whom you owe nothing, we pray that this word would deepen and enrich in our thanksgiving for you. And we ask this for your glory at work in our joy. Amen. Over the next nine months or so, I will be doing more traveling for work than I have ever done before. Uh, There's a Melbourne trip coming up in August uh, for training, a couple of Sydney conferences and trips this year, and a wedding in uh, in Singapore in February of next year. All this travel, of course, God willing, hashtag James4. Now, with lots of travel come lots of booking plane tickets, and the constant yet elusive dream that one day, maybe, perhaps, because I'm flying solo, that'll get upgraded to first class. (laughs) I'm an optimist, but I I think my chances are pretty much zero. Uh, The closest I think I'll ever get to first class is watching YouTubers online video their experience and review their flights. Oh, to have that feeling one day. If you've ever had that feeling, don't talk to me. I just don't, the envy will grow too much. Right, first class, right? It's, it's luxurious, it's expensive. First class is synonymous with being the best of the best. Uh, it's what we all want. We want first class service. We want first class treatment. We want first class objects. Given a choice, we would never willingly choose to be treated as second class. We shy away from purchasing a second-rate item. We want to be first-class people. So as we're thinking about those things which are first-class, let me ask you a question. Do you feel like a first-class Christian? Would someone describe you as a first-class Christian? Let me do a quick survey. Pop your hands up if you feel like a first-class Christian. Not many of us, some of us. I'm guessing that most of us intuitively uh, know intuitively that we're not, but then I guess the question comes back to what qualifies someone to be first class? See, as we go through our passage today, there's a divide, a divide between those who consider themselves first class compared to those they consider to be second class. But God, speaking through Peter, makes it clear that this divide is gloriously smashed in the gospel. Now, instead of two classes of believers, there is only one. Everyone who trusts Jesus, everyone who has simply believed and received Jesus as their king, is flying first class in the eyes of God. 
But not everyone understands this. And so as we open up our passage, we meet a group of people who have trouble accepting that Gentiles are now part of God's kingdom. So our passage picks up from where we left off last week. That essentially makes our passage uh, part two uh, from last week. If you read the story and you suddenly went, oh, hang on, haven't we read this before? Yes, we read a lot of this story before the sharing of Peter from last week. This is essentially part two uh, from the message that we heard last week. Now, last week we saw clearly that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. The conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius shows that God's grace is boundless and Jesus' work has no limits. Now, in this part two of the message, we'll see that anyone who hears and trusts the boundaryless gospel is saved. There are no hurdles to jump through, no borders to cross, no extra rules to keep in order to be saved. It's simply a matter of hearing, believing, and trusting At the end of chapter 10, Cornelius and his household heard the gospel, received it, and were clearly baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, the news of this travels very quickly from Caesarea in the north down to Jerusalem. In a time before Twitter and SMS, the gossip grapevine is working overtime. And so by the time Peter has finished with Cornelius and then journeyed back and re-entered Jerusalem, an inquisition is waiting for him. Acts chapter 11, verse 2 to 3. Have a look at verse 2 to 3 with me. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, the circumcision party here doesn't refer to a party with balloons and lots of food. It's probably a group of Jewish converts, not all Jewish converts, but there's a group of them who believe that to come to Jesus, you need to jump through some Old Testament hoops to get there. You see them come up a few times again in the book of Acts, and their ideas seem to have a big impact in some passages in the New Testament. Now, in some ways, that shouldn't surprise us that some Jews did not take to what they were hearing. The salvation of Gentiles was a radical change. You've got to remember, this essentially happened overnight, Overnight, what they believed for centuries and the traditions that they held, they were suddenly overturned. Now, suddenly, Gentiles were believing in Jesus, receiving the Spirit and getting baptized. The things we take for granted must have been shocking for them. But as hard as all of that may have been to process, the issue now went immediately deeper. One of their very own went into a Gentile house and ate with them. Now, to our modern 21st century ears, that probably sounds like a strange thing to get worked up about. But you can hear the outrage in their voices. But for what? To get a sense of how deep the outrage, imagine you heard that Ben and I were caught having dinner at a local drug dealer's house you'd be right to begin wondering very quickly why we were there and now whether or not we were under the influence of drugs. What Peter did was just as bad in their eyes. You see, Jews never went into a Gentile's home. Never. This is not because of some law in the Old Testament. You will not find any law in the Old Testament saying that they couldn't do that. This was a tradition that they had developed over time. And so for them to hear that not only did Peter go into a Gentile person's home, 
but he also ate with them. He shared a meal with them. That, this was too much. Sharing a meal was significant, a way of welcoming someone into your home and family. Peter sharing a meal with Cornelius would have made him unclean. It would have disqualified him from participating in the temple. It would mean that Peter was now rejected. Now, like a double-edged sword, there's another sharp side to their complaint. The circumcision party knew the gospel. They were Jews themselves who awaited a long time for their Messiah. They knew that Jesus was the one. But being Jews, they also believed that in order to trust Jesus, in order to be saved, you needed to be like them. You needed to follow their rules and customs. You needed to look Jewish in order to follow Jesus. So imagine if one of the, party, the, the members of the circumcision party was here in this pulpit, they'd be telling us, you know, you've got to get circumcised. Put down your roast pork and prawns. I'd quit. <laughs> and start following our rituals about purity and cleanliness. And if you didn't do all of that, you were just a second-class believer. You would have been like the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember him from a few weeks ago? Sure, you could read our scriptures, you could learn about our God, but we're not going to have dinner with you. And don't you dare set foot in our temple. See, what the circumcision party was accusing Peter of was huge. That he not only made himself unclean, worthy of rejection, more importantly, what they were doing was creating different classes of believers in Jesus. So, from verse 4 to 15, Peter retells what we saw last week in Acts chapter 10. And we're not going to go through all the details, but very quick recap. Peter saw a vision from Jesus, basically, that there was no more division between Jew and Gentile. Then when he was taken to Cornelius' home, he started to preach the gospel. Cornelius and those listened, believed, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Now, Ben didn't touch on this last week, but when you look at the end of Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching, there is a very clear sign that the Holy Spirit has come. Cornelius and everyone who believes breaks out speaking in tongues. Now, Luke is here not teaching that we should expect a second experience of the Holy Spirit's filling, that you hear the gospel, believe it, but at that some point later, you will experience the filling of the Holy Spirit that is evidenced by tongues. And let me be frank, there are some churches that teach this. And there may be people here who have come from churches who have taught that in the past. I want to say, I think that's a terrible misreading of this passage. And with tragic irony, that sort of teaching creates an error that parallels the circumcision party an error that creates different classes of Christians. Here's an example. When Ben and Faith were in Sydney, they did their ministry training at uh, the University of New South Wales under a pastor named Joshua Ng. Now, Joshua tells of a story that when he was a teenager of being invited to a Christian event, music was played for nearly two hours, and they went on and on, and the preacher invited then everyone who wanted the gift of tongues to come down on the stage. And he would pray for them, and you would receive the gift of tongues. So Josh and the friend who invited him to come along went down. The preacher went down the line, was laying hands on people's heads, and they came to Josh, laid his hands on his heads, and then bam, Josh broke out into tongues. The preacher then went over to Josh's friend, who, remember, invited Josh to the event. 
The preacher laid hands on Josh's friends and nothing. Josh said that at the end of the night, as they were sitting in the gutter waiting to be picked up, Josh felt great. He was buzzed from the experience. But his friend was absolutely dejected. He felt like a second-class Christian because he didn't get to experience tongues. Friends, that is what this teaching does. It creates classes of Christians, those who believe and trust Jesus and those who have a richer and deeper and higher experience of the Holy Spirit as they speak in tongues. This is the exact opposite of what this passage is trying to say. Peter explains crucially in the middle verses of our passage in verses 16 to 18. Uh, These are the crucial verses to understand what's happening here. So let's reread it again so we don't miss it. Verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. First notice in verse 16, when Peter saw the Holy Spirit fall on Cornelius and the other Gentiles, he remembered the words of John the Baptist. Those words that we heard read from Luke chapter 3 in the Bible reading before. Remembering those words, Peter makes this point, that the coming of Jesus was not for the Jews alone. These Gentiles also received the gift that Jesus promised. That's why they spoke in tongues in the presence of Peter. Not because this passage is telling us what the normal Christian experience should be. It's a passage making another point. Remember, Peter and the Jerusalem church needed convincing evidence that the Spirit was indeed coming upon Gentiles. And you can't get more Gentile than a Roman centurion. That's why in verse 17, Peter makes this statement. If then God gave the same gift to the Gentiles as he gave to us Jews when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? The same Jesus we heard, they heard. The same gift that we received, they received. Why tongues in particular? Because remember, that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit rests on these Jewish disciples, and immediately they break out in speaking tongues. In Acts chapter 10, the same thing happens. Cornelius breaks out into tongues, the same immediate confirmation that he had the Spirit. Now, this isn't saying we need to speak in tongues today as confirmation. If you want to prove that you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need to speak in tongues. What happens here in Acts is unique. It is describing what is happening rather than telling us what should happen. So then how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit today? The first confirmation is that a believer genuinely says that Jesus is both Savior and King of their lives. You cannot say that apart from the Holy Spirit. Then after that, the Spirit is confirmed as we see growth and change in a believer's life, the fruit of the Spirit. But the point that Peter is making is that if they heard Jesus and received his gift in the same way, 
We heard it and received it. And if that is true, then, then do not stand in God's way. Do not create classes when Jesus is making everyone equal. The Jews could not think of themselves as first-class believers and Gentiles as second-class believers. No. Jesus made everything equal. Every believer is a first-class Christian because every Christian is filled with the Spirit when they trust and follow Jesus. You get that wrong, and well, it, it's actually satanic. An attack on Jesus and his work a rejection of God's work and plans and purposes. Who here has heard of the name Mahatma Gandhi? Right, one of the most famous Hindus uh, and one of the, one of the key leaders in, in India's uh, walk towards independence from England. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the Gospels seriously and considered converting to Christianity. He believed that in the teachings of Jesus, he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. If you don't know what the caste system is, the caste system in, in Hinduism is just tragic. It's a way of ranking people depending on, on your station in life, right? Your karma, your reincarnation sticks you in a place and you've just got to live there all your life. You are divided and then the castes do not mingle. And here is Gandhi perceptively seeing that the gospel destroys all of that kind of business. And so one Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church and talk to the minister about becoming Christian. When he entered the sanctuary, however, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church and never returned, and he said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. That usher's prejudice not only betrayed Jesus, but also turned a person away from trusting him as saviour. See, here's what's at stake. If the early Christians, who were mostly of Jewish background, if they refused the Gentile believers, then in effect... There would be no, they would be no different than the, the Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus. The leaders who rejected Jesus did it in a way like their fathers rejected the prophets. That's what Stephen condemned the Jews who killed him for, right? The Israel had a long history of rejecting God's prophets, which culminated in the rejection of Jesus. This is a basic and important fact that never changes across the Bible. You cannot be faithful to God and simultaneously refuse to accept what God is doing in the world. You cannot call yourself a Christian and refuse to accept what Jesus is doing to grow his church. And so Peter is laying it before them. This is what Jesus is doing. He gifted us the Spirit, and he gifted the Gentiles the same thing. In saying all this, he is basically saying to them, if you have a problem then with me eating with Gentiles, you need to take it up with Jesus. But they can't, and they won't. The response is silence. The air is completely taken out of their complaint. 
There is no more counter-argument, no more comebacks, no more ifs, no more buts, no room to reject what Jesus is so evidently doing. And the only thing they can do, the only appropriate thing they can do is embrace the news. And so they do, and they worship and glorify God. At the end of verse 18, it's clear. They glorify God for saving the Gentiles. See, Cornelius is the story of an individual who is saved, an individual Gentile who is saved. What happens next in our passage cements to Luke's audience that God is indeed pushing the gospel out. This isn't an isolated incident. This is now going to be the pattern. God has a big hand in all of it. From one individual Gentile converting, Luke then zooms out from this discussion in Jerusalem, moves the camera north to a place called Antioch, and there we see a whole church of Gentiles converting. Remember, Luke wrote this book to a man named Theophilus. You go all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and he names this man Theophilus, and he's writing both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to give Theophilus certainty about Jesus and certainty about what the er Jesus was doing with his, the early church. And so here, Luke pairs the story of Cornelius' conversion with the conversion of an entire church in Antioch to show that God, this, God is affirming this work. Antioch was the third largest city behind Rome and Alexandria. It had theatres, public bars, sporting stadiums, and was known to host Olympic-style games. Antioch basically sounds like Brisbane, right? It was an important city. So if you turn to verse 19, we're then taken back to Acts, the end of Acts chapter 7 after the death of Stephen. We see Christians in Jerusalem scattered around, and some of them end up here in Antioch. Verse 19 and 20, it might sound a little bit confusing at first, but the gist is that some of the Christians from Jerusalem were preaching the gospel to Jews only, but there were also some who were preaching the gospel to non-Jews. The reference to Hellenists there are basically to those who were Greek-speaking. The key thing is in verse 21. Have a look at verse 21 again. Let's read it. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Jesus is working through the gospel preaching in this place, growing the church in numbers. Yeah, that's, that's what happens when the gospel is preached. Right? People will convert. When you share the gospel, people will convert. In verse 22, again, the report of this work makes its way back to the mother church in Jerusalem. And so they pick Barnabas to head up to Antioch to confirm what's happening. And we met Barnabas a few weeks ago. Remember, he came to the defense of Saul and helped Saul be walked in Jerusalem among the church. But if you didn't know, Barnabas is not his real name. It's actually his nickname. Does anyone know his real name? Someone? Joseph, Joseph right? Acts chapter 4, verse 36. We find out his actual name is Joseph. But because he was such an encouragement to people, he got the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas is the perfect pick to head up to Antioch. When he arrives, it's all good news. I love uh, what it said there uh, in verse 23. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. He comes to this point. He comes to this church. What's going on? And he sees a group of non-Jewish believers embracing Jesus, and that can only do one thing in his heart. Make him happy. Fill him with joy. The grace of God clearly is at work. The son of encouragement 
is greatly encouraged by the Antioch church. And so he strongly encourages them in return. That's what exhorting means, strongly encourage, encouraging them to exhorting them to keep being faithful to Jesus, which is a constant refrain in the New Testament. Barnabas isn't telling them something fantastically new. If Jesus had so changed them, so radically turned their lives around, then the only thing that makes sense is to remain faithful to Jesus. That was the message to Antioch, and it's the message to all Christians through all time. But Barnabas can't do this encouraging work alone, and so he hops over to Tarsus, which is not that far away, and he brings Saul along with him. And in verse 26, we read that they spent the next year with these believers, encouraging them, teaching them, and building them up. What were they taught? Probably the same thing that you actually read later on in Acts chapter 20, when Paul leaves the church in Ephesus and he tells them, I have not stopped proclaiming you the whole counsel of God. Right? Over that one year, oh, to be in that church for a year as Barnabas and Saul took them through the Old Testament, showed them how it all laid the foundation for the work of Jesus, showed them Jesus Christ and the gospel again and how he made sense of everything, encouraged them to keep living for Jesus, encouraged them to grow in their love and service of each other. Luke tells us at the end of verse 26 that for the first time, the believers are called Christians. That's not a name that they gave themselves. It was probably a name given to them to help differentiate them from the Jews. Now we're beginning to see this kind of the clear difference that people are noticing between Jews and Christians. The word Christian is an interesting word in of itself. It's a combination word. It combines the Greek translation of a Hebrew word for the Messiah, which is Christ, and it combines it with a Latin ending, Janus. So it's a word that combines the language of the Jews, the Greeks, and the Romans. Who is Christ for? Everyone. So here we have this healthy, vibrant church community made up entirely of Gentiles. Sounds like us, doesn't it? And just like in Acts 2, they were loving each other, being devoted to the teaching of the apostles, sharing what they have with each other. In fact, that's what we kind of see in the very final verses, right? They hear a prophecy about a famine that will hit Judea, and so they generously put their funds together to help support the church there. Their faith is overflowing in love and work of the work of sharing and partnering with other churches. This growing church of Gentiles is here, confirming that Gentiles really are included in Jesus' kingdom. That's what we see in this passage, anyone. And that really means anyone who hears and receives the gospel of Jesus is saved. If last week we heard that the gospel has no boundaries, this week Luke really hammers that point home. No boundaries, you say? Yeah, really, no boundaries. Anyone can be saved? Yes, anyone who hears and trusts Jesus can be saved. Does that mean there's different classes of believers? No, no more. Everyone is a first-class believer. So the first thing to say about this passage at the end here is is there should be no boundaries that we put up. The gospel of Jesus is for everyone. Again, last week, Pastor Ben asked the question, who are the people we don't want to share the gospel with? This, this week, Luke tells us two stories to confirm that there really is no boundary that the gospel cannot cross. 
And if we would open ourselves to seeing the grace of God at work, then we might respond like the circumcision party did when they heard Peter. We might respond like Barnabas did when he came and saw the church in Antioch. If we would open ourselves up to seeing the grace of God at work and how it crosses boundaries, then we might be filled with awe and we would be greatly encouraged. Why don't we start with just simply asking our neighbor, how were you converted? At the end of this service, don't rush out at the end. Take your time to turn around and talk to your neighbor. Stick around at the end as we hear of the conversion of a people group that we don't tend to reach out to. Be encouraged by that work. Ask how the gospel broke barriers in your life, in your neighbor's life, to help you them receive Jesus. Share your story because I guarantee it'll be encouraging to hear. And then let us think as well and reflect on what boundaries we might be putting up. Are we asking people to jump through certain hoops before they can join us? It might be ridiculous, but, you know, are we saying that if you come into our church, if you're going to really join our church, you really need to work on your Singlish? (laughs) Really crucial. Are we going to say to them, you know, as you come in here, your favorite Chinese food cannot be honey lemon chicken. It's got to be a bit more authentic than that. Now, that's ridiculous. But do we, come in, do, we, do we ask them to come in and say, no, you can't be dressed like that? No, you've got to get your act together a bit more before you can join us. No, you can't be holding the hand of your same-sex partner before you walk in here. Do we put up those borders to hearing the gospel? I think as we leave as well, there should also be a growing sense of awe and wonder and assurance. I asked you at the beginning, were you a first-class Christian? I saw two hands go up. But everyone, everyone, if you've trusted in Jesus... If you have believed him and you are filled with the Spirit, Acts chapters 10 and 11 say, yes, yes, you are. You're not first class because you're so brilliant and smart. You're you're not first class because you're mature. You're not first class because you have reached perfection in your battle with sin. You're first class because you heard the gospel, you received it, and you're filled with the Spirit. Every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit not because you can speak in tongues, but because you can declare that Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, because there is growth in you and change in you into the likeness of Jesus. You're displaying the fruit of the Spirit, however imperfectly. There are no second-class believers. I know some some people here struggle with the sense that their faith is so weak, so mature, so fragile. I know there are some who feel so immature in their faith, that they shy away from fellowship groups because they are afraid to be asked to pray out loud. I know some who struggle because their lives don't feel like it's all together. Marriages that are broken, relationships that are a mess. Friends, if this is you, be encouraged. 
the weakest Christian is as much justified, as much forgiven by Christ, as much adopted as a child of God, as much united to Christ as the strongest and most mature believer. The weakest Christian is still first class in the eyes of Jesus. And there's also good news here for those who are mature and strong in their faith, who are going well. The good news is that you're a first-class Christian, but it's got nothing to do with how good you are. Your status before Jesus is all dependent on Jesus. So praise God for that. Delight in the grace that he gives you and pray that our eyes and our hearts will never turn away from Jesus and onto our own performance. Let me invite anyone here today who isn't a believer here. Over the last few weeks, we've heard that there is really no boundary or hurdle uh, holding you back that holds the gospel back from you. So how are you responding? I want to encourage you that because there are no boundaries, no obstacles that Jesus is putting before you, there is no need to clean yourself up before you come. There's no need to look and act and think and speak like a Christian before you will be accepted. Jesus is simply offering himself. So if you want to come and find out more, I will make sure that the ushers do not turn you away. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, may we be those who have heard the gospel of Jesus and received it with gladness. May we be greatly encouraged that you have included us when we have not deserved it. And you've included us not merely as add-ons, but as deeply beloved children. Help us to see rightly the goodness of the gospel, our first-class status before you through your son, Jesus. And may we keep encouraging others to know and receive Jesus in the same way. We ask this for your glory, the growth of your kingdom, and our gladness in Christ. Amen.